0: Hello, and welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast. The goal of this podcast is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their communities. The host of the Organizing for Change podcast is the coalition coordinator for Avon, Massachusetts, Amanda Decker. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome to episode 30 of the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to equip coalitions organizations, and individuals to bring change to their community. If you are new to the podcast, I just wanted to let you know about another resource we provide. It is our Facebook group simply called Coalition Coordinators. This group is designed as a resource for substance use prevention coalition coordinators. I hope that you join us and other substance use prevention coordinators around the globe for ideas, discussion, and support. I just want to say a shout out to some of our new members. Welcome, EB Hope, Jacqueline Weiner, Kayla Rose, Jess Saley, Jody Hanish, Community Coalitions of Idaho, and the Alliance Bristol County. Today, I am joined by Dr. Nicholas. Chadi. He is a Boston Children's Hospital pediatrician specializing in adolescent health and addiction. Dr. Chadi was raised in Montreal and completed a double diploma in jazz piano performance and health sciences before obtaining his medical degree at McGill University. He strives to provide better health care for vulnerable children and adolescents and has worked with marginalized communities in rural and urban Canada, South America and Sub-Sahara Africa. He is passionate about medical research, journalism, and healthcare policy. He combines his clinical duties with medical writing, policy, research work in the areas of substance use, mental health, social pediatrics and Mindfulness, Meditation, and Chronic Illness. In his spare time, Dr. Chatty enjoys singing with his a cappella group, The Eight Tracks. You are going to find this conversation fascinating, and I hope that you enjoy. Welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast, Dr. Chatty. I'm so excited to have you on.
0: Hi, Amanda. I'm also very excited to be on. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, and you are a pediatrician, and you're also a pediatric addiction medicine fellow at Boston Children's Hospital, not too far from us. That's right. And I was just curious, what made you focus on adolescent addiction? That's such a specific thing to focus on, and how did you get into this field?
0: Yeah, well, I think it it goes back a little while. Um, When I got into medicine, I was uh, very interested in working with adolescents, Um, I had worked in summer camps as a teen myself and I enjoyed that relationship with with teens. I thought it was an interesting just period of life Um, and through medical school and then specializing in pediatrics and eventually in adolescent medicine, um, I got very, very interested in all sorts of substance use problems. I thought it was a really timely area uh, to be in um, and I thought that... uh, Like young people with substance use problems really needed help, and there really weren't uh, that many resources and and specialists uh, to provide that help.
1: That's fascinating. And I noted, too, that your summer camp experience, now that was in Canada, correct?
0: That's right. Yeah, I was born and I grew up in Canada. I moved to Boston uh, just under two years ago.
1: Fascinating. Uh, one thing Canada and Massachusetts has in common, um, that we both legalize marijuana, which I'm sure is a hot topic, especially considering your field. Just do you have any thoughts around that? Or just, you know, has there been an effect on young people because of legalization? Or is that something that you're not really noticing?
0: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, It definitely is a very hot topic. I think it's a little bit early still to talk about any impacts that legalization might have on young people. Uh, Legalization in Canada is very new, it's only been six Mm. months. I think some potential impacts is that it might increase access to to products, which I guess might be a good or a bad thing uh, because it might avoid some young people uh, from using products that might be off the street, uh, like unregulated, um, unverified. So I think we'll we'll have to see what happens.
1: I noticed one thing I saw just looking around to see what the difference was in Canada and Massachusetts. I noticed that there's some pretty strong warning messages that Canada has compared to maybe some of the messaging we have here. And, um, you know, just in talking with young people, it seems like a lot of them are confused whether marijuana is safe, safer than alcohol. I don't know if that's something that you're hearing or, you know, how you talk about that.
0: I think this is a really key piece. Um, And I also think that... um, messaging and even policies really vary from state to state in the US um, and are very rapidly changing. Uh, I'm very interested in understanding how young people conceive and perceive marijuana. I do research about that, um, perceptions of risks and perceptions of harms. Um, And I I don't think that we actually really know what's the best way of of speaking to adolescents about marijuana. I think we're at a time now that because of this whole movement towards legalization, uh, young people think that marijuana is a lot less harmful um, than they used to, let's say 10 or 20 years ago. So there definitely is a lot of room for uh, effective public health campaigns to make sure that young people are well aware um, that using marijuana when they're they're young and their brain is still changing can have long-lasting consequences.
1: Sure. A lot of times I hear young people talk about maybe they use marijuana for depression or anxiety. Is that something that you've experienced or something that you recommend?
0: That's definitely something that I hear a lot in my practice. And so I see, uh, teens and young adults ages anywhere between 12 and 30, uh, in a specialized substance use clinic, but also in primary care. And I hear this sure. type of idea constantly. So young people telling me, oh, I, I smoke marijuana or I, I use, you know, different forms of marijuana. I vape it or I, I have edibles and it helps with my anxiety and my depression. So I think that in the moment, uh, Pretty much anyone, well, actually not anyone, because some people have very negative experiences with marijuana in the moment. But a lot of people would say that the effect of the drug itself will help you Feel less stressed, feel less depressed, um, and, and you know, get you high, which is for for many people a pleasant mm-hmm. feeling in the short term.
1: Sure. But it,
0: it really doesn't do much in terms of reducing your depression or anxiety um, on in the long term. And really, what happens is once you're off to the effect of marijuana, you often will will feel worse. So there's sort of a reverse effect, um, and you're kind of chasing the cycle where. Using marijuana will give you a few hours of relief, and then once you're off the effect of the drug, you might feel worse. So really, I I never recommend using marijuana to treat a mental health problem like like depression or anxiety, especially not in in young people. Uh, We don't have uh, signs showing us that it it works, and we do have a lot of signs suggesting that it it can be very harmful and can actually increase your risk of developing uh, anxiety, depression, and other mental health problems.
1: Fascinating. I know another thing, too, that I've heard young people say that they might have negative side effects from the medications that they've been prescribed. So they'll say, you know, I use marijuana to ward off some of those side effects. I don't know if that's something that you've heard or.
0: That is something that I've heard. Yeah. And I think we have to be careful also with. The idea of medical marijuana, and I'll just yeah. open in brackets here. And so, the term medical marijuana really comes from the marijuana industry, not from the healthcare industry or, or healthcare providers. Um, and, and really, what it means is that um, some people use marijuana for medical reasons. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that it it helps or that it you know, medically effective. Um, so I think there's a lot of of information out there that comes from different sources. And, you know, medical marijuana dispensaries or companies may, may advertise uh, several benefits, like perhaps helping with side effects from medications. And it could be tempting for, for anyone, really, who's having those side effects to try uh, marijuana. But as far as we know, we really don't have any studies that show that marijuana is an effective way of dealing with side effects like this. And I'll I'll make one exception, though, because for Mm -hmm. uh, teens or adolescents um, that have cancer and are are taking chemotherapy or or very aggressive treatments, marijuana actually can help um, with those symptoms. But that's Mm -hmm. really pretty much the only kind of side effect that I would say has research behind it for using, um, quote unquote, medical marijuana.
1: Fascinating. I know another thing, too, that I've just been thinking a lot about is just the whole change. So I've been doing um, working in the prevention field for the last 15 years and just something that's kind of changed over the last couple of years when it comes to working with young people um, is the whole issue of electronic um vaping devices, and I don't know if that's something that you're experiencing with youth coming to your office for nicotine addiction, or if you've really noticed a big change over the last few years, and just kind of what are your thoughts maybe around that?
0: Definitely. So I think that we can both agree that um, vaping or electronic cigarettes is really another hot topic uh, these days. So um, e-cigarette use in, in adolescence um, has shown the highest increase in use of any substance in kind of recorded history for high school students. We've seen in the span of of not even 10 years, uh, e-cigarettes being something that was not even known about to something that about a third of of high school seniors now uh, use or say they've tried. So definitely something that I see in my practice. So I've seen several, several young people coming and saying that they've developed an addiction to nicotine through uh, a vaping device or an electronic cigarette. The most commonly used one is, is the one by, sold by Juul Labs that has a um, really big chunk of market shares right now. And I think it can really bring a range of different problems. So some people, some young people are using the electronic cigarettes or vaping devices to vape nicotine. I would say that's, that's a big part of, of, who I see, and then some other people will, will use it for marijuana as well. Um, it's very hard to find um, liquids that would contain only flavoring um, and no kind of substance or drug in them. Um, so I would say that um, it's definitely kind of an emerging issue, and from a prevention side of things, we didn't really see it coming. Uh, so it happened quickly and all of a sudden, um, and so now a lot of health providers and doctors and schools and public health departments are really trying to understand how we can deal with this this issue because it's huge
1: it's fascinating you say that i was talking to a parent and they you know told me off the record that they were the person buying the um The pods and whatnot for their child but their child had explained to them that there's absolutely no nicotine in any of the pods it was just flavoring and I think that's a big misperception that a lot of people you know believe that it was a completely harmless thing that you know it's just flavoring no big deal and you're saying that's definitely not the case
0: yeah, I definitely will agree with you. So there was a study that just came out last week in one of the big pediatric journals saying that about 40% of young people who use e-cigarettes don't think that it contains any nicotine, and what we know is when we look at the sales of of liquids that go in those pods or those e-cigarettes, it's almost 100% of them that contain nicotine. Uh, some some of the studies show like 98, 99% of all those products sold that do contain it. So I think you're right. There's a lot of misinformation, and the misinformation is is among adolescents. It's also among parents and families. Uh, a lot of of parents that I speak with really are 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 not very informed about what an e-cigarette is and what it does. Um, and, and what you're telling me about a parent possibly buying these um, these products for their, their children, thinking that maybe they're doing the right thing, um, is not uncommon, um, but I think can definitely lead to, uh, to some issues.
1: Yeah, and when I think about parents, too, I think there's just that whole thought about... You know, they'd rather their kids experiment and them know about it or experiment with drugs and alcohol at home so they can kind of teach them what safe use is. And, you know, what would you say to a parent who just thinks, well, as long as they do these kinds of things and I'm there with them, it's it's fine?
0: Yeah, you're bringing in a very important point. I think there's... Um... There's a lot of discussion on what's the best way of parenting an adolescent to try to prevent them from having problems with drugs and alcohol. So I think one thing that we know for sure is the later a teen starts using alcohol or drugs the lower their chances are of having problems or trouble with it. So to a parent who's thinking, oh, you know, maybe my 13 or 14-year-old, if they try this and I'm there and I can supervise, maybe it won't be as bad, that really is not uh, true because in a way it's, it's sort of a message that we're sending teens that using drugs and alcohol at a young age is, is okay as long as we do it in a certain way. And because the brain of a teen is really not fully developed, it, it is very fragile. So um, even if we think that it's done under supervision of a parent, and to be quite fair, even if parents have the best intentions uh, and think that they're supervising, very often, teens can be sneaky and they'll use a lot more than what was agreed upon and it, could lead to situations where actually the use is, is not uh, done in a supervised setting at all. Um, so I really encourage any parent I see pretty much with a young teen in thinking about this um, to really enforce that It shouldn't be something that young people are doing at at that age, um, in that the message should be that it's it's not really okay to do that, Um, and of course, a lot of teenagers use substances, um, but I think that the message that they need to hear from their parents or trusted adults is that it's something that has a lot of risks, um, and really the healthiest thing is is not to use or to delay use until uh, the brain and the body is, is much better developed.
1: That's really great advice. When you think of when a parent should be having that kind of conversation, you know, what what you know, age do you think would be appropriate for them to start having that kind of conversation?
0: Yeah, I think as soon as a young person is starting to show signs of interest, um, and, you know, those things will come up. We look at, you know, TV shows and movies, and it's, you know, Young people, even kids um, in elementary school, are exposed to the idea of using drugs or alcohol. So I don't know that there's necessarily a good age. I think anywhere between the ages of 10, 11, 12 is a good time to start talking about um, alcohol or drugs more seriously and sending that strong message that really it's not something that should be done um, at that age. That's
1: great advice. One thing I also got too around this um, topic is when parents think about You know their own use of maybe alcohol or whatnot, and they think you know, is it okay if I drink in front of my kids? Should I not drink in front of my kids? You know, how? What would you advise to parents and guardians around that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, I think that's another uh, interesting question, and and I would say that there are definitely different opinions and perspectives on this, and this might depend on various things, um, including, you know, what part of the world this this is happening or what cultural background, you know, a family is from. Um, I think one thing that is, you know, consistent is that um, parents should be modeling healthy behaviors, right? So Mm -hmm. a young person, a young teen or or an adolescent, I don't think should ever see their parents intoxicated, right, or having um, more than just a few drinks. Um, because of course, you know, young people are tempted to to imitate their parents or or do things that they've seen or they've heard of. Um, I, I don't think that it's bad for for parents to drink a glass of wine or beer, um, you know, in the company of their of their children. But I think it, it does require kind of a clarification that this is something that um they're doing, you know, possibly to relax, possibly to enjoy themselves, but not to necessarily get drunk or, or do things that might be risky. And, and of course, having that conversation again, around the fact that it's better to wait and not to do it when we're young.
1: Yeah. And I think you brought up a good point too. So just depending on like where you're from, like an often a common misperception I had, I just attended a parent meeting a few days ago and she was kind of going back to, you know, in Europe, there's a different culture when it comes to drinking and, you know, they let young people drink, and they all seem to turn out better. And just we know from the science that, you know, providing alcohol to your child, even in Europe, hasn't been a successful, you know, experiment. And um, I, th- I think that's really interesting, you know, just giving kids alcohol is just not smart, even if it's, you know, a cultural thing.
0: Yeah, and I mean, speaking about, about culture, and culture is, is sometimes a little bit of a difficult word because people can, can you know, attribute different meanings to it. But in, in the U.S. specifically, there seems to be, uh, you know, a large issue around college-age drinking, right? It's almost like, quote-unquote, a cultural thing that... Uh, young people who, who go to college have all these opportunities to drink and drink excessively and you know it's part of a lot of of social events and even if it's happening underage it seems to be something that's normative um, so I think that's you know a, a great example of, of another s- situation where drinking underage or, or you know sending a message that it might be okay to do it um, it's not healthy and really can be harmful for, for, for our young people.
1: Sure. So what if a parent is out there and they're wondering, you know, maybe my child has been using, like when should, when do you think a parent should be worried about whether their kid has used substances or um, their child's tried something?
0: Yeah. So I think there are sometimes some subtle signs and some not so subtle signs that uh, there's there's an issue with, with alcohol or substance use, I think I'd, I'd like to backtrack a little bit and say that ideally uh, there'd be an open conversation about this in, in every home, right? And and sometimes parents have their own experiences with substance use or substance use problems. Uh, so I think it's, it's ideally a discussion that would be prepared through, I guess, several years of having open discussions about What's okay, what's not okay, and yes, it's okay to talk about it with a parent and if you know you're curious about certain substances, well it, you know it's a good idea to talk about it, and then, in terms of recognizing kind of signs that there might be actually something going on that parents are not aware well. You know, anything that would have to do with changes in, in grades at school or losing interest in certain activities or changing peer peer groups or seeing your, your teen or your, your child hanging out with different people who may be using drugs or alcohol, um, possibly, you know, money disappearing or not being accounted for, um, things being stolen or lost, um, comments from school. I think those are all signs that something like substance use might be going on but those are very like not specific it could be something else that's happening also you know it could be a mental health issue it could be a social problem it could be a number of things I think we have to be aware keep it on our radar and you know for every parent I think it's smart to think that it's possible that their child or teen will at some point be using substances and having an open conversation about it is is a nice way to make sure that we don't get too many surprises
1: Yeah, and I think the open conversation is so important. So I currently work, um, I share space with a nurse at our school. um, And one of the things that they've been doing, uh, they started doing last year, is something called SBIRT, which I know you're familiar with. So maybe you could just explain that to our our listeners. And I know that's been really helpful for us and just like opening, you know, for the school nurse to open lines of communication to talk about substance use.
0: Yeah, thank you for bringing this up. So SBIRT is an abbreviation that stands for S, screening, uh, BI for brief intervention, and RT for referral to treatment. And what it means is in the span of a few minutes, uh, a healthcare provider or a school provider can screen to see if there's a problem with drugs or alcohol, have a, a short conversation about it with a young person, and then refer them to other services or other providers if, if there's an issue or if there's a need. Espert um, can be done by a primary care doctor during kind of a, a, a regular visit. It can be done uh, by a school nurse at school. Um, it could even be done in, in the community in different uh, settings. And I think that The nice thing about it is that we have very good tools um, to be able to pick up these uh, substance use problems early on by asking only sometimes one or two questions. Uh, So it can be done very quickly. Uh, It's very accessible, and and school nurses now are doing it more and more. Uh, One thing to know is that there's a very exciting policy in Massachusetts where every middle and high school is now required uh, to have all of their students undergo SBIRT at least once by the time they graduate. It's a policy that's, that's about a year old now um, and is unique across uh, the country. Massachusetts is currently the only state that has a policy like that to implement SBIRT in schools. Um, and definitely, I think a lot of providers and primary care doctors uh, in this state are, are also very proactive in doing SBIRT and doing more screening uh, during their visits uh, with kids and teens.
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the original concerns uh, that the school nurse had here is that it would take a long time. And uh, she's reported back to us that it really hasn't added on time. She's been able to do the screening along, um, combine it with some of her other screenings. And really, it's only been like an extra minute or two, which is um, definitely different than when we first heard about mandatory SBIRT compared to how it actually uh, works when it's been
0: implemented. Yeah, and I think another exciting um aspect of it is so I'm I'm involved in, in research. I, I like to study um, the effects of different interventions and see if it can help prevent or delay uh, drug problems in kids. And one of the recent studies that I've been a part of um, was asking uh, just over 800 students in, in Massachusetts what they thought of this SBIRT mm-hmm. process in school, if they thought that it was a good idea, if they thought that it was a sort uh, like a safe space for them to speak uh, with a school nurse or school counselor. And overwhelmingly, uh, young people said that it They thought it was a good idea that an adult at school would ask them about um, drugs and alcohol. They also, for the most part, felt comfortable uh, going back to that person if they or their friends or family had problems with drugs or alcohol. Um, But I think that our research also highlights that um, some people have, have fears and reservations in that some students are afraid of consequences at school. They don't Necessarily always know what will happen with that information if they disclose that they've used um, alcohol or drugs, so I think that the the whole expert um process and programs in schools is something that we can definitely continue to improve on. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to see how that's going to go and just the way you're, you're talking about it, how in the span of a year or two, a lot of school nurses and providers went from thinking that SBIRT is not something that they could do to something that they actually can do and is pretty easy. Uh, I think we're going to see improvements and, and, and definitely changes in, in how to make SBIRT even more effective and more kind of accessible for everyone.
1: Yeah, when you think about it being more effective, what are some things that you think um, maybe either school nurses or just people who are conducting expert, um could do to make it more effective?
0: Yeah. So I think that, you know, once we've screened or we've identified someone who's used a substance, um, the next step is is usually to share a few facts or some information that might help convince or, or, you know, sway the young person towards not using, using less or using later in their life. I think we're still at a point where we we don't really know the exact, you know, words or things that we should be telling young people to to really help them make the healthiest decisions. Uh, There are some ideas. Like we know that adolescents don't be don't like being tricked, so telling a teen mm-hmm. that if they start using an electronic cigarette or start smoking a cigarette, well they might become addicted, and that's going to be great for the big tobacco company that's going to take a lot of money from them long term um and that mm-hmm. actually is a very effective way to to help um convince young people not to start smoking or using addictive uh, drugs. So, you know, how we can integrate this knowledge that we have about what will actually make young people change their minds about substances or use less um, and, and effectively, you know, train nurses and doctors to do that, I think those are sort of our next steps, um, and it will require probably some more work, some more research, and, and a lot more training because I think that some nurses are becoming yeah. more comfortable with it. Uh, some people are not so comfortable with it yet, um, and so that. Mm-hmm. I guess why why I'm involved with some of that work and, and why we have uh, a lot of, of exciting kind of um, places to improve uh, in the future.
1: Yeah, and one thing I've uh, been thinking about just when it comes to uh, some messaging I've heard, I know that the Just Say No messaging doesn't really resonate well with young people, but something we've been trying out is the Just Say Wait you know like if you wait till your brain is developed and then you want to try different things like it's a lot it's a lot less dangerous if you wait till your brain is developed so it's not a just you can never do this it's a please wait
0: yeah i think your point is a good one usually telling a young person that they can't do something without really giving them a reason why or being overly strict will probably backfire and have the reverse effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, young people are kind of in a stage of life where, you know, exploring is, is, is just natural and sometimes, you know, seeing different boundaries and, and trying to see, you know, what happens is, is a part of growing up. Um, so having, I think, smart messaging that will be convincing but not overly uh, strict, usually a great, a great way to go about it.
1: Yeah, and I also love, too, so one of the things I read a little bit about you, just um, that you help young people deal with things like stress and anxiety, which are very real to kids. Um, You talk a lot about uh, mindfulness, and I know that's something um, that's pretty new to me. I haven't really done a lot of research about that, so maybe you could just spend a few minutes just uh, telling folks about how you've used mindfulness to just help young people deal with some of the things that um, they might be facing.
0: Of course. Yeah, so for, for those who might not be so familiar with, with mindfulness, mindfulness is uh, a concept that means being present in the moment, being aware of what's happening to your, your mind and body. And that comes from way back when. So the roots of mindfulness come from Eastern Buddhist traditions um, and are very related to to meditation. So what that means concretely is a young person or a teen who would be doing mindfulness might learn how to do short meditation practices. Those can be uh, sitting and breathing meditation practices, but those can also be um, meditating while doing uh, activities of your daily life, um, like brushing your teeth or walking to school and things like that, and and trying to really be conscious of uh, what's going well for you and what's going well in the moment. And so for teens that have anxiety and depression, it could be a very nice way to help slow down these thoughts um, that sometimes might be creating a lot of distress and and unease. Um, And so there are now programs that uh, have been researched um, and are usually in the form of of a course um, that can be done individually or in a group um, over the course of of several weeks where we can teach young people to learn mindfulness and these new skills. And it can be really helpful for a bunch of different mental health conditions and also to help prevent or reduce uh, substance use problems. problems. So I've been very interested in in researching mindfulness. I'm also uh, a mindfulness instructor and provider myself. Um, I personally have a meditation practice that um, I've integrated in, in my daily life that I find that for me is very helpful. And I, I love sharing that with uh, my patients and the families um, I see, because uh, I can see a lot of potential to it. And, and really, uh, meditation doesn't have any side effects, right? It's not necessarily like taking a pill or or something that might cause you harm down the way. And in the really vast majority of cases, mindfulness is something that's quite quite harmless and and really has great potential to to help.
1: And I think that's fascinating. So I listened to um, a podcast that you have out on your website and you did a really short just example of, you know, what that could look like and you kind of walked through a really quick breathing activity. I don't know if you remember that or you just want to explain that to folks.
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, so I think you're referring to a practice that um, is often called a stop practice. And that's a yeah. practice that can be done pretty much anywhere at any time and takes usually, you know, 30 to 60 seconds. So what you would do, and I'll, I'll lead one just now, is you um, really stop what you're doing. Um, and I'll lead the practice as if I was, I was doing it myself. Um, So, find a comfortable position where you are, if you're sitting or standing. S is for stop, so we stopped. And then T, take a few deep breaths and pay attention to the air coming into your mouth and your airways and your lungs and really focus your attention on your breathing as the air comes in and out. And then as you continue to do that, Broaden your awareness and observe, oh for observe what's happening in your body, in your mind, if you're feeling any tension or physical pain or, or problems, or if you're having any emotions or stress that is, is causing you some difficulty. Just observe those and try try to let them go and not be judgmental or be caught up on them. And then P for proceed, um, using this, this kind of slow breathing that you've been doing. Get ready to proceed to the rest of your day um, in a way that's that's mindful and and, and kind of non-judgmental, and so that really would be an example of a short stop practice. And I have teens that tell me that they love doing that before a stressful, you know, basketball game or an exam or when they feel like they can't get along with their friends or their parents and they just need to take a few moments to gather their thoughts. Um, so that is just one of many many examples of of short meditation practice or mindfulness practice that can be taught and used
1: i think that's fascinating especially since you know i've kind of heard of the topic but never really learned about it in depth and i um you know i found just that little exercise so practical and i think a lot of times when people hear of the topic they just i don't know tend to think of it as some big mystical thing and um i Tried it out and it was super helpful for me personally, so I think that's really neat.
0: That's great to hear, and and I think one one important thing about it is that you any, anyone needs practice. It's it's like working working a muscle, right? So like if you do yeah. it the first time, it might feel really weird. It might not work for you, yeah. um, but definitely doing it more and more and having different people guide it for you. And there are a lot of free guided uh, videos or audio uh, clips online that you can get of practices like the stop practice. So there's so many ways to get introduced to it and, and try it in a very non-threatening way, I would say.
1: Yeah, I think for me, it was just fascinating to think like, wow, this is something you can take anywhere and you can do at any time, and, you know, you don't have to, like, you can take it wherever you go. So that, that was really neat, just kind of aha for me.
0: Great, great. I'm glad this yeah. works for you. I hope you, you continue to experience <laughs> with it, yeah.
1: Yeah, same. Well, this time has flown by, and I really appreciated uh, getting the chance to talk to you, and um, I know our listeners are going to really enjoy this conversation as well.
0: Well, thank you, man. It's really been a pleasure uh, speaking with you. Yeah.
1: Hope you have a great rest of your day.
0: Well, thank you, and you as well. For more information from today's podcast, check out our show notes there you can find our contact information, social media, and website. Please get in touch with us if you have any comments or questions. And if you like today's podcast, please share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.